Good evening. Tonight's reading comes from Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 to 23. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognise them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognise them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Good evening, everyone. Certainly tempted to take one of those stools and sit down up here, but I won't. Um, if you don't know me, my name's Ken. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. If you are visiting or newish with us, um, it's it's great to have you with us. An extra special welcome to those who are joining us on the live feed as well. Um, we would love to meet you uh, and talk with you after the service, so stick around for supper afterwards. Uh, and if you haven't done so already, um, these Connect cards are out on the welcome desk. It's a great way for us to be able to just keep in touch with you. So if you're happy to fill in one of those, please do so. Um, just a couple of other really, really quick announcements. One is next Sunday's Daylight Savings. Um, you should know by the six o'clock that your time's changed. So uh, it's a bigger issue for those in the morning. Um, the other thing to notice is um, Faye Robertson. For those of you who don't know Faye and John, uh, Jess's mum and dad, um, Faye was diagnosed with a brain tumour this week. Um, it's very, very aggressive. Um, she noticed some symptoms in terms of her hands uh, or her right hand. Um, and so the doctors were very quickly able to diagnose what was going on. She's booked in for surgery on Wednesday at Wollongong Hospital. Um, so please be praying for her and the family. Um, Jess and Ido were actually booked to fly to the Philippines on Tuesday, the day before the operation. So there's lots of stuff going on in the family uh, and they'd really appreciate our prayers. Um, so pray for them. Uh, and I'm going to pray for them in a minute as we start out. But just thinking about tonight and where we're going, um, we've done seven weeks already in Matthew 5 to 8 in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. And as Sam said, we're coming to the end. This is, this is the high point of the sermon. Next week will be the last sermon on the Sermon on the Mount before we head into Easter. I don't know about you guys, but I have found these last couple of months incredibly challenging as everything from anger and adultery to worry and prayer have been examined by Jesus and, and, and he's pulled it apart. And we're thinking, oh man, I thought I was okay on that, but maybe I'm not. Jesus has laid out the blessed life and shown how good it is. And now as we get to this end section, he's pushing us to make a choice. As that push for a response ramps up, we need God's enabling to understand and to do, so I invite you to pray with me. Let's do that. Lord Jesus, we thank you that uh, your call to walk your way uh, 
although it's exclusive, uh, is not arrogance, it's truth. Uh, we need to understand truth and it's so easy for us to hear all the noise around us that suggests so many different other ways of walking. And so as we spend some time thinking about what you've got to say as you came to the end of this sermon, uh, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what you're saying and by your spirit you'd enable us to respond appropriately. Uh, we do pray for Faye, uh, for John and the family. Uh, we thank you that this tumour has been found and diagnosed quickly. We pray for her in the tests that she'll do over the next couple of days, the scans that will happen, and then the operation on Wednesday. We pray that it would be a complete success uh, and would completely relieve her symptoms, uh, that she'd come through that successfully and, and recover very quickly. Um, so we pray for her and the family, uh, particularly for Jess and Edo as they work out what they need to do uh, in all of this. Uh, give them great wisdom. Uh, so we pray now that you would uh, be speaking to us really clearly, uh, enable us to respond in a way that honours you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think that one of the most frequently used metaphors to describe the spiritual life is that of climbing a mountain. Usually, the reason it's raised its main point is that all paths lead to the top. A website I found called Mind Fuel Daily uses this popular image to give what I think is fairly typical advice for choosing your spiritual path in life. How do you know that you're on the right path? Look for the path where wisdom is open to you. A path that lets you move as slowly or quickly as you wish is another good sign. Beware of paths that promote themselves as the only true path. They will get you only part of the way up the mountain. Now, if we're selective enough, Jesus' teachings can be made to sit quite nicely with this smorgasbord approach in which we choose what is true for us. Restrict yourself to quotes like, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, don't judge. And Jesus' teachings do fit in with current popular wisdom. The problem is that Jesus' statement in verses 13 and 14 makes that evaluation of him impossible to maintain. Have a look again at verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. In the court of popular opinion, Jesus is guilty of the ultimate sin in the eyes of our society exclusivity. How dare you, Jesus? As Rod prepared us for last week, from, from this verse, from verse 13 until the end of chapter 7, Jesus is telling us that it's time to choose. Jesus has already laid out what it looks like to walk his way. And Jesus himself now declares that there are only two gates leading to two paths which end in two very different outcomes. The first gate is wide, leading to a broad road that ends in the destruction of many, those who choose to walk that way. The other gate and the path it leads to is narrow. Sadly, only a few will find it, let alone follow it to its ending, which is life. So much for all paths leading to the top of the mountain. From the top of the mountain, King Jesus declares that that type of thinking is just nonsense. 
Jesus pronounces that there are only two ways to live, his way or the highway. He doesn't defend his statement or provide proofs of his claim. Rather, he gives us two warnings in light of this stark choice. Firstly, listen to those whose walk matches their talk. Listen to those whose walk matches their talk. And secondly, be those whose walk matches their talk. So because there's only two ways to live, what do we need to be careful of? Well, the first warning is that we must be careful of who we listen to. It's always been the case that some people are more convincing, whether it's friends choosing an activity to do or family choosing the movie that you're going to watch, some people have a way with words. These days, the internet has dramatically multiplied the variety of opinions that are easily accessible to us on all sorts of different issues. Rather than having to read the book or hear the talk yourself in person, we can now listen to the presentation that's at our convenience and we can make our choice in our time. Job chapter 12 verse 11 proverbially describes how we often evaluate things. We, we listen, we ponder, we work out what makes sense to us. In the lead-up to the state election yesterday, we heard a lot of promises. If you elect us, we'll make housing cheaper. The reason why everything is so expensive is the mismanagement of that other team. As voters, we weigh politicians' words, attempting to determine whose explanation is the most reasonable. But Jesus says that words are not enough. Actions speak louder than words. And so when it comes to whose advice you should take in terms of spiritual matters, rather than finding someone who tells us something that sounds good, Jesus says, look beyond the words. The website I referred to earlier is just one example that sounds so accepting, so tolerant, so open-minded. Pick what's best from all the options. And Jesus rejects it as a terrible lie. Jesus says that some prophets, that is, those who speak on behalf of God, are not the real deal. Their words deceive us. They look safe on the outside or, using another picture, they're dressed up as cute, cuddly sheep. But the reality is that under the the surface, they act to destroy us. They are, in reality, ferocious wolves. I think the contrast of sheep and wolves is very powerful, but we often miss the point that Jesus is making. Like a bad disguise in a cartoon, we assume that we're the ones who are going to be able to see straight through the false prophet. But the reason Jesus warns us about counterfeits is because they are so convincing. We must not assume that all false teachers will appear to be bad people. We won't be able to pick them out of a lineup because of how they look or even because of what they say. And as we do our normal thing of listening, pondering and deciding, we won't always be able to tell the good from the bad. So rather than just evaluate based on words, the way to distinguish between false prophets and true is to observe their actions, verse 16. By their fruit you will recognise them. Their words may seem spot on, but how do they actually treat people? They might preach poverty of spirit, but but in practice, are they actually arrogant? They may instruct their followers to mourn, but behind closed doors, do they celebrate sin? 
Now, I think that we have to be very careful at this point to, to not cancel out every teacher because we can point to an example of where they've done something or said something wrong. Applied that way, we would have to condemn all of the greats of the past. Martin Luther, for example, the, the famous instigator of the Reformation, has now been exposed as anti-Semitic. While he wrote things of extraordinary insight that are foundational to so much of what we believe and hold to be true, he also wrote terrible things against the Jewish people that were gross sin. Does that invalidate justification by faith? It would be even easier to point out more recent examples of high-profile pastors who've fallen into moral failure, those who've had millions of followers and siphoned money off for themselves. It becomes very murky to consider what should we do with the books of evangelists that have found out to be people that have abused people or pastors guilty of bullying. Do you read their book? Now, it's not my goal to excuse or justify the sinful behaviour of religious leaders, either others or my own. But a danger is that we can use Jesus' instructions here to dismiss whoever we disagree with. We identify a particular issue and make it the test of whether we're going to listen to them or not. The problem is, is that if you dig deep enough, you will be able to find inconsistency in every teacher because we're all sinners. The only teacher who gets this perfect is Jesus. So what do we do with Jesus' warning then? How do we apply it? I think that Jesus' point is that we have to be on guard. As humans, especially as Australians, it seems to be in our nature to doubt and to question, which with regards to Jesus' first warning is a really good thing to do. If the Apostle Paul thought that it was a good thing to evaluate his teaching, comparing it with Scripture, then there is absolutely no teacher who's beyond that kind of scrutiny. There will be plenty of people who say the right words on the issue that you've made most important, whose Bible teaching or, or latest book helps us to navigate a tricky issue. But remember that the best forgeries are the ones that most closely resemble the real thing. Just because someone says something that has validity doesn't prove that they're somebody that we should listen to. So I'd say it's a good thing to listen to a pastor, to, to read books, but as we do, we should always be evaluating, questioning, asking what is helpful here, what's just this person's opinion, what is consistent with the Bible. Unfortunately, all too often we set ourselves up as the final arbiter of what is right and wrong, which Jesus says is his prerogative, not ours. Mind Fuel Daily says, beware of paths that promote themselves as the only true path. Jesus says, if you're not on his path, you're heading to destruction. So be careful who you listen to. YouTube, you may not realise this, is not a neutral collection of ideas. Neither is the library or the sermons that you listen to. What news you watch, the, the groups we chat in, whether they're online or in person, can profoundly influence us for both good and for bad. Kurong sells a lot of great books, but also a lot of books that will encourage you to put yourself first. When the Jehovah's Witness or Mormon comes and visits at your door, 
and calls themselves a Christian, do not assume that they have your best interest at heart. I think that perhaps our biggest self-deception is that we think that we're clever enough to be able to see through the disguises. But Jesus warns us against only evaluating based upon words. At the Bible college that I got to teach at in Thailand, each year the students and the faculty together went on a camp. It involved lots of fun activities, games, church services, lots and lots of eating. Uh, It also included a significant amount of work. I have never mixed by hand so much concrete. I didn't even know it was possible uh, to do what these guys did. In the few days of living and working together, it was actually incredibly revealing. Some students, whose grades were only so-so, were clear leaders, were, were hard workers who inspired others. They joyfully got on with helping in whatever way they could. Others, who always topped the academic results, were conspicuous by their absence as soon as there was hard work to do. Now, the consistency between the words and actions of the first group was a beautiful thing to see. And over time, it's proven to be a better indicator of who makes a good pastor. Now, please, whatever you do, do not hear me saying that hard work is the ultimate proof that you should listen to someone. Workaholics can be much more dangerous than a dodgy theologian. But the lifestyle of the teacher that you listen to is not incidental. Only fig trees bear figs. And only a grace-dependent teacher will teach you grace in words and in actions. We all have a choice to make. Jesus' way or one of the alternatives. So be careful who you listen to. Make sure their walk matches their talk. Now, the first warning is a scary one for me as a teacher. Can I get up here and say all of this stuff when I know what goes on behind the scenes? I think the second warning is even more confronting because while our evaluation of teachers can be improved by taking into account their lifestyle, it seems that if they're ungodly, well, their ungodliness is between them and God. It's not, it's not my deal. But being challenged on our own inconsistency is a completely different matter. Jesus' second warning is because there are only two ways to live. Be those whose walk matches their talk. Because there's only two ways to live. Be those whose walk matches their talk. In verse 21, Jesus says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, Jesus is saying that it's not just words that matter. Some people will say all the right things, and yet they are frauds. To call Jesus Lord, we would normally think is enough. Isn't that what Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says? If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Words clearly are important. But words that are inconsistent with truth are worthless. Jesus doesn't want to simply be called Lord. He wants to be Lord. He doesn't allow for his teachings to be part of a buffet from which we can pick and choose the bits that we like. In the end, doing that kind of thing is retaining lordship to ourselves. But even actions are not necessarily proof that he's Lord of our life. Didn't we prophesy in your name, verse 22? 
Didn't we drive out demons and perform miracles in your name? Surely that's the proof that someone is on Jesus' side, isn't it? The people in Jesus' example in these verses seem to not only meet the standard but exceed it. But it's not enough, according to Jesus. Jesus' condemnation is, away from me, you evildoers. Huh? Hang on a second. Since, since when was prophesying evil? Casting out demons, healing people. Surely all of these actions are proof that someone is good, not evil. Normally we would consider someone able to do things like these. Proof that the person is a religious expert a spiritual leader, someone that we should listen to and model our lives on. But Jesus isn't any more interested in spectacular actions than he is in fine-sounding words. Both can be forgeries. What is even more important than words or actions, according to Jesus, is being known by Jesus. Have a look at verse 23. Then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Which I think is a very unexpected way to put this. As you came in tonight, you walked past our vision statement to know Christ and to make him known. It's worded in such a way that implies that we are active in bringing about the result. And I think it is a really great summary of a lot of Bible passages by prioritising getting to know Jesus and and making Jesus known to people that don't know him, it will clarify what life is all about, or at least what it should be all about. But Jesus' emphasis here in chapter 7 is on his knowing us, not our knowing him, which reveals that the authenticity of our relationship with Jesus, as judged by him, is the thing of supreme importance. The ultimate condemnation is for Jesus to say, I never knew you. It's not simply a statement of knowledge, but about relationship. For Jesus to say that he doesn't know someone is a condemnation that there is no relationship, no connection, that any claim to be for Jesus or on his side is simply untrue. And so if Jesus is just one of the spiritual advisors you listen to, beware. I think that the type of advice that Mind Fuel Daily, uh, the website, is so popular amongst Aussies because we get to decide what we believe is true. I can choose the bits I like, the, the commitment level that I'm comfortable with. But that's not an option on Jesus' narrow road. He says it doesn't cut it. He's the boss. He makes the rules. And he doesn't accept being just one advisor amongst many. He demands an exclusive relationship. We either accept Jesus as king and therefore are known by him or we hold on to our authority and will end in destruction. Now, I've spent a lot of time focusing on the last verse, verse 23. The Part of the reason for that is because it clarifies, I think, verse 21, which says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, if we lost the rest of our Bibles and we were left with just verse 21, it might be possible to say that entry to heaven, entry to the kingdom of heaven, is dependent upon our obedience. Doing the will of my Father who is in heaven is assumed, according to that thinking, to mean keeping all the rules. 
But we don't have just verse 21. Surely by the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we realise that so long as we are still impacted by sin, keeping all the rules is not in our power to do. It's much better to see the wording of verse 21 is an intentional, clear echo of the prayer back in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Go back there. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we pray for our Father's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're submitting our desires for his, our rights to determine what's best for his. It's an ongoing daily acknowledgement that he's on the throne and far too often we have a desire to jump back on. Now, when, when, we, when we do that, it doesn't mean that we don't bother trying to do the right thing. But the Father's will is not primarily about what rules you keep or who you should marry or what job you should do. His will is for all of us to accept his Son as our Saviour. John chapter 6, verse 40 puts it this way, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I'll raise them up at the last day. No mention of keeping commands. It's all about trusting in Jesus. The spiritual path is often thought of as actions and beliefs, but Jesus says that it's all about being known by him. It's not what we do, it's who we know, or even better, who we are known by. To insist that there are only two ways to live, I think, is very confronting extremely exclusive and even at times I think it seems a bit over harsh some of my very best friends here in Wollongong are not Christians and they are very nice generous caring people in fact many of them are a lot nicer than some Christians I know Um, this last week I've been riding with a friend uh, a number of friends and they have given countless hours in organising a huge fundraiser for David Dietz, the principal at Smith's Hill, uh, which has already raised over $35,000. These people are altruistic. They're not doing it for themselves. They don't want anything out of this. They are just genuinely nice people. Today, a group of them gave up their time to go and help clean up the Dietz family home because they're planning to sell it. And Jesus identifies the generous, kind, non-Christian as walking the broad road that is opposite to his narrow path. They don't know Jesus and they are not in relationship with him. And because of that lack of relationship, Jesus combines their good way of living, their generosity, their altruism, with a lot of different ways of living and condemns them all as wrong. The angry murderer, the drug pusher, the violent domestic abuser, the gentle Buddhist, the philanthropist and the agnostic, the spiritualist and the non-religious, all of them and every other path trying to find its way up the mountain is going to end in the same place. But it's not at the top of the spiritual mountain. It ends in destruction. The only path that ends in life is to be known by Jesus. Do you know him? Are you known by him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, 
you're often portrayed as gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And the words that we read in this passage do not fit nicely with that. Your exclusive Jesus that says it's only your way that leads to life. And that's not because you're angry or because you're looking down on others. It's because it's the truth. It's the only way by which we can be saved. And so, Lord, I pray for each one uh, who's thinking through this now, uh, whether they've been walking on your way for 50 years or whether they're considering which way am I walking, pray that you'd work in our hearts, enabling us to understand what you're saying to us through this part of your message. Enable us not to just hear it, but to really receive it for what it is, words from you, and enable us to respond in a way that honours you. We pray in your name and for your glory. Amen.